that's just my area. I haven't seen a lot of problems hiring people. Uh, maybe finding the perfect candidate might be a struggle, but I'm willingness to take a chance on someone that I can see that's willing to learn and is a hard worker. I'll make bets on them all day long. Welcome to the Gas Compression Podcast. This is the only podcast out there for professionals working in the gas compression industry. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews and discussions with some of the leaders in the industry to discuss the latest trends and what the future holds. If you're working in the gas compression industry and have always wanted to sit down with the leaders in our field to pick their brain, this show is your chance. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com. Welcome back to the Gas Compression Podcast. I am excited to have Chris Hokum on. He's with Seven Compression. And we're going to talk a lot about small wellhead compression and industry application trends today. So small wellhead compression is sometimes overlooked as an artificial lift because of the reluctance to release the LOE. But with less drilling activities, operators are faced with finding ways to keep production flat without the inflow production from new wells. So Chris has been in the industry for about 15 years and He's in the Anadarko Basin in Oklahoma, Texas Panhill area and has helped solve some problems. So I'm looking forward to finding out what he's all about. So welcome, Chris. Appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on. So the first thing I always start with is how in the world are you in the gas industry? How'd you get here? Well, that's a journey. All of it, you know, kind of, I went to Oklahoma State. When I graduated and as a chemical engineer, I really had no clue what I was doing. And then kind of Slummer J, yeah, Slummer J kind of recruited me and I knew nothing about oil and gas. And I was very reluctant at the time because I didn't know if it was going to be stable or not. You know, I didn't know the longevity and didn't know it was going to be around because you always heard that, oh, we're going to run out. I just didn't know anything about the industry. I was like, well, I'm going to take a leap of faith and, and went in because the way they recruit me is all, hey, we're out in the field. And I was all about outdoors. And I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. Why not? And so that's kind of landed me in the industry. And I kind of landed the right spot in 2006 and kind of cut my teeth in the Barnett shell when it was really start to really get very active with horizontal drilling. And so I started out doing cementing and cross-training the frack with them and did that rotation work for turning should have been like two weeks, but you know how that goes. It turned into three weeks and turned into four weeks and I kind of was like, ah, I need to change things up because the work-life balance was way out of whack. And so I moved back home. To, now where's uh, home? Home is, I grew up in central Oklahoma, a little town called Mustang, kind of mm-hmm. went there. And so I came back home and tried to like reevaluate what's important in my life. All my family was here. So I moved back here and then found a, another service operator that kind of did the same thing I was doing before, but that was a smaller company. And so it seemed more advantageous for me to kind of a faster and easier place for me to kind of grow and get my roots. And it's closer to home. And it made, I liked the job I did. I didn't like to be away from home because I was living out of hotels when I was in Barnett and it just didn't seem normal. So I moved back home and just kind of landed that. I wasn't seeking that out. It just kind of came up and landed. And it was a great opportunity for me. I did in the very beginning, did the same type of thing, being a field engineer got promoted to different, more 
leadership roles within the company. And we went all across the, the U.S. We went from Pennsylvania all the way to Permian, did a wide range of different jobs. And really, as a field engineer, your, your operations, the land operator position is always on the table. You're always looking for that kind of angle. Because at the end of the day, you're just taking, hey, here's a design, go perform, right? And you're always like, well, you find these little inefficiencies and things that, hey, I think this would be better. But, you know, a lot of your voices never really heard on that front. I wasn't really actively pursuing it, but um, I was blessed to, to land a, a job with an operator for a little over five years. And right before the kind of the recent downturn, I was... Like everyone else, you know, a lot of people in the industry had was involved in, you know, layoffs. And with Devin, um, I was um, initially was a completion engineer, but my role quickly changed within that company because they were going through a transition and they were going a lot about making data-driven decisions. And part of that is standing up a real-time center. And so that's where I kind of got pulled in with my background, especially in frac and Knowing that side of business very well, got pulled in there to, to see what, you know, completions or what a real-time fright monitoring, what that would look like. And so that's where I did most of my stint there at, at operators to basically stand that up as a business segment within an operator. And so and that evolved into flowback and then evolved into, they already had geosteering and drilling, but they were trying to add different parts of the life cycle of the well to try to get a full picture of basically data. Because if you don't have clean data, it's hard to do anything with it. So, and that's kind of been, and, you know, went for the operatorship, most of my experience there through my, basically in my experience, I've always wanted to learn new things, right? And that's why I've tried to broaden my horizons. I've always wanted to get in kind of the more production space, kind of further myself away from the drill bit, if you will, and land. And because I just have a lot of exposure, I'm there way before that happens typically, right? You know, I was fortunate enough to land position with seven compression. You know, I didn't have any sales background. I was more or less sales of myself and maybe ideas I had to different team members and and so to say, but I had a very good operations background of how what it takes. Basically, we, we started in Oklahoma. We grew kind of organically in the very beginning. We're just a handful of units up here with no sales because of just kind of organic growth. And I landed here about a couple of years ago. We were at like 15 units at the time, and now we're, we added 100 since I've been here. That's kind of our, where our numbers are. So we're kind of small in the, the grand scheme of things. We're still a small compression compared to others, you know, because we're just a small private equity company that's trying to grow a good business. So in my role, it morphed a little bit. Usually it was just sales focused, but quickly realized I'm very hands-on. So I was boots on the ground learning how to use these these piece of equipment, how they function, how they work, and quickly grasp that pretty well to the point to where now I've got a blended role where I'm in charge of operations, but also sell. So I'm doing kind of both roles because they're almost one and the other because it takes a, a good amount of work to get with a new customer to get a unit on the ground, but it doesn't take a lot to get it back. So you almost have to have some good hands-off and it helps to have really good equipment and it helps to have good team members. So all that matters. So let's talk about seven compression. So you guys have about a hundred units out there, which by any standard, I guess that would be a smaller compression company. Are you doing a, a really niche service? I see your unit there in the background. 
Are you producing, sending out one type of package for one type of application, super, super niche? What are you guys up to? That's been our strategy, right? We offer one basically package and it's sub 50 horsepower wellhead compression. Now we got two different flavors of that. We kind of have our legacy one. Then the ones we're building a day is the latest, greatest. It's the picture that's in my background. And mm-hmm. we call that the Titan Flex. We basically specialize in that and we've kind of gone into that direction. That narrow focus makes us very efficient in what we're doing from a service standpoint and what we're doing. We don't have all this, we don't have bigger horsepower that maybe pull us in different directions. We're honed in and small and nimble to make decisions quickly with just one unit. We're very honed in on that. We made really good decisions early on about how we package our unit that really differentiates us from the other competition, frankly. When you say that you package your units differently, tell me about that. Tell me about what is different about sure. what you guys are out there doing versus what everyone else is doing. What I mean by that is we're a small company and the way we're growing is we're building new units. So our Titan Flex has kind of been around for two years now. Prior to that, we partnered with WF Murphy and made a great decision about that. And what we did there is basically took the latest and greatest technology at the time and outfitted with the package that we have. And so that opened the door with us. And this is basically what that is, is Murphy's EICS system. This is basically a missions control panel, all an integrated system that they have with a lot of bigger horsepower and that's across different compression companies. And we had a custom-made fit for our package. And so what that does is now we have a very young fleet in the industry and then all the latest, greatest capabilities out there for small compression, which a lot of small compressions out there is very aged and maybe don't have that capability. And so that kind of opens the door for us to really provide a package that has every option that you would, would want to have and would like to have. Basically, it results in just with uptime. It's going to run a lot better. It can adapt to all the changing loads that kind of smaller producer wells give to it. It doesn't matter if it's stable production. It adapts to all that. So it can auto-throttle down, auto-recycle, auto-start, and all do that with a package to design the work together. It's not a PLC type system. It's basically almost like a car, ECM. It's all made to work together. Even from real-time data, submitting it to the cloud to maybe making remote changes remotely. You know, it has all that capability turnkey to kind of keep up with today's kind of standards and where we're going as an industry. And it's all about data, right? And you got to have pieces of equipment out there that's able to do that. So when I hear wellhead compression, I'm in the Texas Panhandle. Those are all screw compressors around where I am. And so your packages are recips, right? Correct. Are they like the, we call them SIP compressors where they're kind of like compressor and plane or how, what kind of compressors are they? So they're an integral compressor, meaning they share the same crankshaft. So one side's power side, the other is compression. So it makes that package pretty small and we're able to scale it up and down the compressor based on the well demand. So if we're injecting, say, you know, at the 350 PSI and we can move up to 350 to 400 MCF in those kind of scenarios. But if we need, we need to move more than that and we're on kind of maybe a backside of ESP or pumping well, and we can move up to 650 in that configuration. It really depends on the suction discharge, but our things can scale up and down pretty easily on that and make it a good package. You know, with its ability to, you give a range to walk, operate in as far as RPM, 
and you give it suction and discharge set points, and then basically the unit runs itself. If you give it windows to operate, and it's going to stay within those windows. And all that makes it nice whenever, and for me too, especially if we're testing new wells, all this data is available in the cloud. So I can go in there and look at it and say, I can get the optimization and not have to be there all the time, right? I can see how the one unit is performing and I can see if something were to go down on a fault. I know what that is before anyone gets there. It makes it very easy for these units and that's available to anybody in our customers. And that's just part of our package, right? That's not like a cost center. That's just, I think that's the price of doing business these days. You got to have that capability. Otherwise, you're just leaving stuff on the table. What kind of engine are you using to drive that? It's a Ford 460. Okay, that's cool. So this package has been around for a, a long time. Several companies changed hands a couple of times. They initially created this type of design, but there's always room for improvement. You know, and that's where kind of seven compression started is from that company. They, you know, people had exited and want to start a new company and want to kind of do things they weren't able to do before. And that's kind of where seven compression started. It's like, well, what do we do if we change the way we dump? And what if we change the way we control the system? And that's where, you know, we got a different control panel and, and it's all made to work. It just made a very operator-friendly package. It's yeah. very easy to start. I mean, truly, you just push a button, start it, let it take off and let it warm up. Then it's loaded and it's often learning based on the set point you give it. So, and another really neat thing is, is the way we're handling crankcase pressure. You know, a lot of that's kind of depending across the industry, how people are handling that. And that's could be a fugitive mission. And what we've done with that is we use that as a, as a secondary fuel source. So we don't leak that into the atmosphere. We reburn that. And so that just makes our package very inefficient from a fuel perspective. And we've measured this. Like I said, Murphy has been had this thing for over two years on a dyno and so fully mapped out. So we know based on load, how much our unit's burning theoretically versus actual, all that stuff's on there. And, and so we're burning, if I'm slow, if I'm recycling and idle down, I'm burning anywhere from two MCF to fully loaded in time my eight range. So very low, very efficient, always in compliance from an emission standpoint. There's no smoking mirrors about changing different points on a carburetor to get emissions. And then when they're gone, they're turning way back. I mean, it's made the work like that design. So it's just a really great package. And it just helps when you got good people in the field and you got new stuff. I mean, Having new stuff really, you know, helps with everything. You know, it's not seasoned and plagued with different problems. It's all starting with kind of good stuff. And we've been doing it for a couple of years. So we've worked out all the bugs and we're trying to even grow on top of that and make it even better. How many employees does Seven Compression have? We talked about the hundred, little over hundred units in Oklahoma, but we're in different places too. So we're in South Texas, Arklatex. We're just getting started in Greenland, Colorado. We just started there. We kind of outskirts the Permian. That's just a whole different animal to, to get into the basin. Challenges is people out there and, sure. and costs out there are a lot higher too. We're in the San Angelo area and we just started there. So San Angelo and Greenlee are kind of maybe newer positions. And San Angelo is kind of grown with existing customers, have different assets. And we just kind of say, they really like us to say, hey, let's come over here and see what we can do. And so we've kind of grown a lot of organically through that way. And that's how originally how Oklahoma got started is kind of through that. 
And then you build and manufacture all your units there in Oklahoma? Yeah, there. no, not in Oklahoma. We have a manufacturing in Tyler, Texas. So we do all our manufacturing there and we're basically building to meet demand. And we're at this state, we're the sales team is doing a good job and we're taxing our manufacturing right now. Are they responsible for manufacturing new units? And I mean, you probably don't have a lot of repairs to do right now as you're brand new. We position ourselves. We don't really cannibalize in our fleet. I'll, to be honest, I'm, my area is 97% utilization. So I don't have maybe a handful of units in the yard. And those are just, those are just made in case something happens and we pull a unit in uh, until we get our repairs done. But with the age of our fleet, that's not common. Really, to make the repairs, if we need a swinging engine, that's not a, a big all feat. It's a pretty quick process. It helps. You mentioned the way you're using, you're capturing gas in the crankcase and using that to as a secondary fuel for the engine. Something that comes up in every one of these podcasts is the ESW, the Environmental Sustainability Governance, you know, emissions. You mentioned about being able to, you know, Murphy putting it on a dyno and being able to, is that something that's a big selling point for what you guys are doing? Our customers, what I'm curious to know is I know we got to pay attention to that, but when customers are seeking you out, is that something they're asking about? Or is it just, I need to move gas? It's area dependent. And a lot of it is, you know, a lot of my interaction is at the field level. And it all depends on who's telling them what's important. In certain areas, it's very important because it's in their best interest to go that route. It's gaining a lot of traction and more people are talking about it, right? Because that's kind of elf in a room is, you know, what are you dealing with fugitive emissions? You know, we've helped solve some of that, that issue with our unit. Like I said, it's designed to do that, right? It's got a secondary butterfly that's monitoring the casing pressure and it's operating that butterfly to capture that gas. Cool. It's not something you just throw in and, and then, hey, we're capturing it. It's, it's designed and that as it sees that, it just feeling on the primary side and to keep in compliance for emissions. So it's all working together as a one system. I mean, there's not a lot of people kind of doing that. They capture that, but that's not helpful for what we're doing with being an integral compressor. We can take stuff that passes past the rings and reburn it. Even if something happens catastrophic with the compressor, we'll be burning mostly off the crankcase at that point. And that comes up with the adaptive fueling that we look on the system. We know when that happens. If cranking pressure gets too high, the unit will just shut off and sit on alert that it needs to be fixed. So not that that happens, that's very rare, but that's, and it's nice to have that kind of option. You just don't start leaking it because, you know, I see that. I see a lot of compressors and older stuff that you got a hose off the crankcase. It's just laying on the side and you see fumes coming out of it. And that's just not what we're trying to do here. We got a package that works and is designed to do that. I just love hearing the entrepreneurial story of, we can't rely on what we've always done and these big, huge companies, nothing against big companies, but if we want to see something change and change fast and save all of those things, we've got to do it the entrepreneurial way where what you said, you know, some guys get together and say, man, we can do this different. Let's raise some money and let's do it. So. And that's the story, right? And that's, uh, it started with the idea. And originally it started with private money, but as you know, do you really want to grow a company? It's hard to do that with private money because right. it takes a lot of capital. And frankly, to build these units, it's not cheap. It's not cheap to put new stuff, especially in a market that we're in with supply crunches. All prices are elevated. But we've committed to, and this is the kind of strategy we have, we've got, in our opinion, a very good, sound, running piece of equipment that can do a lot of things. 
and it could be used in a lot of different applications. And that's what's the beauty about it. It's not earmarked to just gas lift where you have to sit behind facilities. Like I said, at the wellhead, handle fluids. Any well that has problems with fluids, either it can't produce fluids or it can't handle the fluids it has currently. This is where this small compression comes into play. While your base production, you know, there's a lot of it can benefit from a compressor like this. And what we come to package is, for me, I want the wells that keep you up at night. Ones that you, they're low producers or for some reason you can't get the work right and a lot of people forget about them. That's the ones I want to get on and make those wells great again. That's how I like and the guys really enjoy. At the end of the day, we're here in business. We're trying to grow. But at the end of the day, I really, I really enjoy finding more money for customers. Really, these Titan Fluxes, as, as customers get on, they don't let them go. I very rarely get them back. And, and it depends on the application, VRUs, systems. And that's a small part of the life cycle that well. And whenever oil production falls off and vapors are no longer more economical to have it on there, then that's the name of the business for VRU anyways, for rental. So those are situations, but on other applications, once we're on there, it's like it's the runtime and uptime you have with it. It just makes it an easy decision. What challenges are you facing or seeing in the compression industry? Some of the challenges there's is there's a reluctance for any operator because we're coming out of this pandemic, right? And what got a lot of the storyline is you need to reduce LOE at all costs. You've been pushed a number, say, hey, you need to reduce by that. And that's a metric and you can save money, but sometimes that metric is a little skewed because it doesn't take everything, right? The better metric is LOE per BOE because you can go too far the other way and then you're hurting production. And at the end of the day, you're making less money. So a lot of the thing is it's hard to justify spending more to make more. And so that's kind of been a challenge. But for us, once we're, we get our food in the door and you show how we perform from our units and the great employees that we have, it kind of makes that decision easier. Because let's be honest here, we're building new equipment. We're not the cheapest guys in town. We're not looked at as, as a commodity compressor. We're top tier. And we basically put our money where our mouth is. We'll test wells and prove it out. And then let's talk about what that looks like. So I'd say a reluctance of putting LOE on wells has kind of been the struggle. But prices today have really helped solve, makes that a lot easier because a little bit of increase really makes it advantageous to setting small compression. And a lot of it is just changing our strategies. A big, for me in my area, injecting down the backside on plunger well is gaining a lot of traction right now. Well, that's tiered to, to some of the elevated gas prices, but even that is kind of formal artificial lift being called GAPL, gas-assisted plunger lift, is gaining a lot more traction across the industry. A lot of it is just people's reluctance of always going the rod pump. And there's other options out there that make that lower cost solutions for operate because everything is at the surface you operate versus having to do workovers and go down hole and doing that. And all that matters based on the well and the gas to liquids ratios, all that things matter to make that sure you play. But there's definitely a lot more options, a lot more expertise in the field to make some of those options available today. How about staffing as far as you guys having any problems finding technicians and mechanics that are building your packages? And is that an easy thing for you guys? I know your that shop is in Tyler. One thing that always comes up in these podcasts that I want to talk about, and I've got a guy that 
I'm going to have on probably in a week or two that is, I think he's in West Virginia. He's the, I guess, the instructor for a technical school for compression. So number one, are you having issues finding those people? And number two, what would you want to say to a, a guy that's running a program to train the future generations for our industry? So we've gone about that the right way. We're not growing at a, and this is, you know, I'm speaking for my area. I'm growing at a pace where I know where I can manage. I don't try to get ahead of myself too much. And that's kind of what we stick to is we have a low unit per tech ratio than others because we want to make sure we focus on our equipment and we give it the service and the optimization time for that. But as we grow, we're trying to do that. And there's times where you're trying to find the right person. But for me and for my guys, someone that's you know technically sound, and there's a lot of opportunities out there. And I think it's a lot of base independent, but I haven't seen a lot of shortages there of people wanting to come to work. They might not have the right background, but I think for where we are, I'm okay with training someone and getting the food on the ground and go from there. And just have some oversight until you know we feel comfortable enough to do that. So with small compression, a lot of that is where that comes from is people want to get in the industry, they are eager, might not have compression experience, right? That's kind of a lot, a lot of the stuff when I hire people is they may or may not have, but there's a lot of people out there that maybe got let go from an operator as a lease operator, and they make a perfect candidate for one of these. As long as they're mechanically a clown, we can train on the engine. As long as they're a hard worker and willing to learn, we're willing to teach. Do you have a formal training program in place? We're a pretty small shop, so it's not formal. It's, it's basically hands-on. We're going to be partner up. I'm all available. Some of my lead techs are always available at a phone. And I usually have, we have a couple of guys in certain areas, so we're always able to cover each other and talk through that. I don't think it's, you know, formal in a sense, but it's, you know, not flying blind by any means either. We make sure before we turn them loose that everyone's doing things the right thing and doing safe. And there's no stupid question, right? Anyone stupid is the one that's not asked, in my opinion. You know, we try to pick the right people and kind of go from there. And now that's just my area. I haven't seen a lot of problems hiring people. Uh, maybe finding the perfect candidate might be a struggle. But I'm willingness to take a chance on someone that I can see that's willing to learn and is a hard worker. I'll make bets on them all day long. That's great. That's kind of how we are too. We don't have a formal training program, but we just need people that want to learn a new trade and get after. I mean, that's the thing, right? You got to be open for change. If you're not open for change, you're not open to willing to learn, right? And that's kind of how I started. I, I didn't have a lot of experience in this side, but I want to learn and. And I'm a gearhead by trade. I like tinkering on hot rods. So that motor in the background, that's, that's easy for me to take off and figure out kind of how things and how to tweak it and to make it better. So it just kind of lined up and kind of landed perfectly for me, honestly. Looking ahead to the future, what's on number one, like for seven compression, what are you guys thinking is the need for wellhead compression and what you're doing continue to grow? Where do you think in the industry we're headed? We see a bright future. Pricing helps right now, but as you know, a lot of people are not drilling as much as they used to, right? Because along, a lot of people are nervous as far as investors to give out money to drill new wells. And so what do you have to do? Well, you have to figure out how do you get more out of what you have now? We got a widget for that, right? And we believe we've got the best widget for certain applications for that, right? And I think 
having good sound equipment enable to scale with an operator or tie into their SCADA system to make changes or to see data is the wave of the future. Because we're all going to go towards managed by exception. We're all going to have data to come in and say, hey, how do we optimize based on it? Because at the end of the day, if you go to the well and you just, and someone sees a snapshot of data, you're just seeing the small sliver of what that looks like. What if you had all the data and you see, you start seeing some of these changes in between where you are there? Well, why don't you make a change now? Well, having that data, unless you have a data, you don't know that's happening. And then having systems like ours that have that capability and we can do that and easily design to do that. Cause that's just, that's plugging in the back of our panel and tying into your system and it's off and going. It's not, Anything we're changing on the system to make that work, it's all part of that. And for operators that don't have a SCADA system, this is like a pseudo SCADA system for them because they can see the pressures. Because I can tie a transducer anywhere and read pressure versus what I have on SCID. Man, really enjoyed hearing about what you guys are doing and kind of a super niche application for a, a compressor that you guys have designed. Anything else you want to say or before we sign off? I mean, I just appreciate the time. For me, I just... I'm willing to learn from anybody, right? I want to be good to my customers and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm the right fit. We're not always the right fit because we're not a low cost option, right? And that's just part of it. We want to make sure we're the right, we've got the right partnerships. We've got good people and we like, we're invested, right? Because, you know, we're going to invest in our time and our energy. And if that makes you money, great. If not, then it's just not meant to be. I'm big on learning. I always like meeting new people. Anyone can reach me anytime. I'm on LinkedIn anytime. And uh, I'm sure you'll put my contact at the end of this podcast. And anyone that has questions about what we talked about or maybe they have an application, I could tell you yes or no, or if we were a great fit. I'm pretty open and honest about anything that I have to do with myself and the And like you said, if there's somebody out there that has a well that's just keeping them up at night or it's not working right, that's the one you want to hear about, right? And that's typically with new customers. That's what they put us out on because they're going to test us, right? I like challenges. I'm a problem solver. That's how I look at things. If you got a problem well, it's like, I want to solve that problem. Well, I hope someone out there thinking of that well in the back of their mind, that's like, man, I got to call Chris. So sevencompression.com, look up Chris on LinkedIn. Man, enjoy having you on, Chris. And I appreciate it. To seeing you again soon. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gas Compression Podcast. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at gascompressionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com.